Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Kat Ramzinski. I grabbed her by her ponytail and I lifted her up eye level and I said crazy shit to her. I said stuff like, I got your DNA now, bitch. That and more. But first, folks, if you've never been over to patreon.com slash risk, that is where, of course, you can help support the show, but also be a part of a community. You know, whenever we have something special where we want to invite risk fans to participate in this or that sort of thing, we'll post it over there. Of course, there's all our bonus stories. There's our check-ins and our ad-free episodes. There's so much wonderful stuff to find over at patreon.com slash risk. And it means so, so much to us. It's so crucial to us to have that financial support over there. There's also a way that you can send us a one-time donation if you're more interested in that. And that is at paypal.me slash risk show. We are so, so, so grateful for the support of our fans. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Mark Juliana behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Recovery. A lot of funny stuff, scary stuff, beautiful stuff about recovering from, oh, just all kinds of things, (laughs) which I think we can all relate to these days. But what's kind of special about today's episode is that all three of these stories were very recently, within the past few months, recorded at Caveat in New York City. New live stories to share with you today. And we are back at Caveat on February 17th. Now, that is also the day after my birthday. So we're going to celebrate both my birthday and the February Risk Live show at Caveat on February 17th at 9.30 p.m. Come on out, hang out afterwards with us. If you can't be there in the room, there's the live stream. Tickets for all of that are at risk-show.com tour, and we will be so happy to be up on stage again. So in a little bit here, we're going to hear from Robert Weinstein. It'll be Robert's second time on the show. But before that, a story from Kat Ramzinski. Holy cow! (laughs) Was she a trip to have on the show? Kat is quite a character, as you are about to hear. She can be found at VersaceColacci.com. Now, there's a lot of laughs in this story, but there's some violence, too. And Kat came all the way from Texas to New York to share the story. So here she is now. This is Kat Ramzinski with a story we call Making New Friends. 
Hey, thanks, y'all. So, um, all you need to know about me is I've almost died, like, a lot. <laughs> like, way too much, to be honest. I have been bitten on the tit by a brown recluse spider. And it swelled up so damn big, it was the same size as the other tit, so I just kept it. I probably have an internal infection right now. Um, I've been hit by two cars. I've fallen off two roofs. I've gotten sepsis. Uh, all sorts of crazy, horrible shit. I probably shouldn't have shared that last one. That was pretty gross. But yeah, I've almost died a lot. In 2009, I got my head stuck in the door at a cheesecake factory. I was working, by the way. Mid-shift. Squish the fuck out of my head. It would not quit squeezing. I passed out. I woke up. Because I'm a team player, I still got bread for my table and made tea. I don't give up. Okay? That's all you need to know about me. I also love adventures. And I was really excited about this next one. It was a holiday. It was actually a dual holiday. And it was my two favorite holidays crammed into one. It was April 20th, a.k.a. 420 in 2014, and that day also fell on Easter. Now, here's why this is good for me. I fucking love weed, and I love eggs. So, I should have just been sitting around farting, eating eggs, watching Dateline, and Game of Thrones, just having a, a hoot and holler of a time. It should have been a great day, right? Uh, should have been high as hell. But I had a tooth infection. You ever had one of those? No, you have pretty teeth in New York. I did notice that on my way in. Let me just say that. Well, in Texas, if you don't have a knife and a pet dog, you're not getting that tooth out. So listen, I had no options, okay? And it was rotten out of my fucking skull. And it was 420, and I wanted to have a good time, but I needed medication. So I went to the store. Our grocery store there is called the HEB. Now, this one was one block away from my house. I lived on the east side of Austin at the time with three stand-up comics. I'd just gone through a breakup with my homeless boyfriend um, because I found out he was homeless. Uh, and I should have seen the signs, and I mean that literally. He had fucking signs. <laughs> So it was a bad, I was sad, I was in pain. I'm walking, it's literally one block from my house. I had to walk through a middle school field. I opted against the sidewalk that day because I'm a thrill seeker. And as I'm going, I notice all, have you ever like walked into a room and everyone leaves? Okay, so you're all not, you're pleasant. Okay, fair enough. All right, well, I have a personality disorder. So it happens all the time. And I did not fart. They just left. Like, I went outside, and everyone just scattered. And it was weird because it immediately got dark, and I did not expect that. Within the three minutes it took me to get into the parking lot, look around, and realize, shit, this place is closed. It's a holiday. It's 420. I've made a mistake. So in that time, it had been about three minutes. It had gotten dark. The street was desolate. I'm sitting there going, fuck, the store's closed. So I turn around, I start walking home. And as I'm looking at my phone, I can see my front yard from where I'm standing. It's pitch black, right? I see a silver van start to drive to the left of me. And it's going really slow. And in it, there are three guys that I could see and one girl. And they pull up in front of me and they park in the parking lot of this middle school. They are the only thing keeping me between Dateline and possibly trying to deal with dry sockets and just dealing with it and sucking up all the weed and eating eggs anyway. Like they, this group of people in a van, that's it. And they're parked there and I'm sitting there looking at them like, hmm, 
this is interesting. Like, what's about to happen? And that's when the door opened, and like a biscuit popping out of a tin or me unzipping my jeans, a young lady jumped out of the van, and out from behind her came three guys, right? And they lean up against the van. And they're not like flicking quarters and shit. Like, these are like legit, like they looked terrifying. They uh, lit cigarettes, and she looked terrified too. Let me tell you about this bitch. First of all, she's the only one who starts walking towards me. They stay there. And as I look at her, I realize her makeup's running. Her eyes are shaking. She has something in her hand. She's doing this. And she's walking towards me. And all I can think is, wow, this girl looks like she goes to Florida on purpose and fucking loves it. (laughs) This is not good. She does not want to be my fucking friend, right? Like, no. But I also try to see the best in people. So I thought, hmm, maybe she needs help. (laughs) And I look at her, and the only thing I said to her was, do you need help? And she, at that point, was nose-to-nose with me. And she's on her tippy-toes because she's shorter than me. And she starts walking around me, which I can't do because I'll step on the mic. But she starts walking around me, nose-to-nose. And she says one word, and it's, bitch. Well, excuse me, (laughs) ma'am. We just fucking met. Uh, Bless your heart. And I'm looking at her, and before I can even communicate back, like, hey, rude, you know, I see a knife coming down. Oh, it gets crazier. So here's the thing you need to know. I saw all your buttholes pucker in real fucking time. That's how I felt too, okay? But here's what you need to know. Getting stabbed is actually not that fucking bad, okay? That's what they, they don't want you to know. But it's really not that bad. Like, to be honest, it was better than a piercing. Like, when it happened, I was like, I feel nothing. Like, you go completely numb. Like, I wouldn't recommend it, but if you're in the situation, you're going to be fine. Like, something happens to your body. You get adrenaline. It's like when Mario touches the star, and that's what happened to me. And you just start wrecking all the fucking turtles. Like, I went crazy. First of all, okay. I'm 37 years old. I have not worked out in mm, 37 years. So it was amazing. I got all this strength. I did this crazy shit. I literally, and this is true, I saw it on video because there was a camera facing the middle school. It's the only part of the video you see too. Is she's coming down at me and I blocked it. I'm like doing this shit. I'm getting defensive wounds, you know, and blood's everywhere. And at that moment, like I clicked. Like I became who I was born to be when I'm watching WrestleMania. And I grabbed her by her ponytail and I lifted her up eye level and I said crazy shit to her. I said stuff like, I got your DNA now, bitch. And then at one point I started speaking Spanish and this is true. I was like, tu mi vergas, puta, I'm from San Antonio. Like I went nuts, okay? I kicked her in the vagina. I get her on the ground. I drag her into the street. I'm like, we're doing this. And at one point she's still going at me like she does not give up she's a little energizer bunny she's on some methamphetamine tonight so I'm like looking down at her and at one point pardon me corona um I stick at one point I got checked we're fine at one point I stuck my thumb in her neck because I'd seen that shit well actually I didn't see that on anything my grandma told me if anybody comes at you jab them in the neck with your thumb she said that growing up she's great um she beat a man in your death at an ATM once for looking at her funny so 
I grab this woman by the throat. I'm pushing my thumb in, and at some point she starts to like petechial hemorrhage. And I know that because God bless her, Olivia Benson from SVU. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, holy shit, like I'm gonna have to take this bitch's life, right? And that's not fair. Like she shouldn't put me in that. I don't know her. Like, why do I have to now commit a potential crime? Like, why do I have to do this thing that I'm probably going to regret my whole life? Why do I have to kill someone because of her? You know? Like, I'm pro-choice as fuck. If I'm going to kill anyone, it's going to be from neglect and drug use, and it's going to be my fault, and it's going to be my baby. No, I'm just kidding. Texas is fucked up. But, um... mm. But at that moment, I was like, no, I'm not letting her decide this for me. And I let go, which was a big mistake because then all her friends came like a gang does and they start beating my ass. And here's what's fun. Um, The one I call the hot one, he had a great bone structure, perfect form as he was decking me in the face. He knocked me out, but right before he knocked me the fuck out and shattered my orbital bone, the one I call Latino Hannibal Burris, and I'm sorry, okay? He just looked like a Latino version of Hannibal Burris, and even the cops said that when I pointed it out, and he had the suspect. Anyway, that guy stole my purse, and all he got out of that was $30 worth of shitty comedy tickets, so have fun, you know, at the laugh fuck night. Um, so at that point, I was like, fuck, I, you know, I get knocked out. I'm like, these people don't want to be my friends. Like, this is terrible. And they take off. You know, they get in their little van and they ride away like a methy mystery machine. And I'm just laying there and I'm collecting evidence on the ground. And I'm like touching it with leaves. And I'm like, I wonder if they can get mitochondrial DNA. Because I'm a fucking nerd. Look at these glasses. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, man, like, this is crazy. And then the cops show up and then there's like a family there and they had a little girl with them and they brought me in and I was like, I'm bleeding on everything. And they're like, the house is getting foreclosed on. You're fine. And then the little daughter's like, you're bloody. And I'm like, and you're going to be the next Dexter and it's my fault and I'm sorry, you know? And it's just horrible. And the cops show up and they're very attractive and all the EMTs were attractive. It was crazy. Like there were just hot people around me. Oh, it was so awkward. And I'm just like, hey, what's your name, you know? Like, I'm out of it. They're giving me Dilaudid, you know? It was crazy because in the hospital, the nurses were like, what are you here for? I'm like, fake tits. They didn't find it funny. And then everybody started gathering around. The police, oh my God, the police, they gave me a swab in. I got to see a, a sketch artist. And she was crazy. She didn't have functioning hands or legs. And this is all true. And she put the pencil in her mouth and drew with it and then stuck the shading part in her fingers and did this and talked to you from her wheelchair while she drew. She really didn't ask me much about what they look like, which was weird. She's like the gang whisperer. And the whole time, like, I'm telling her, like, just kind of what happened. And she tells me when I'm done, I'm going to flip the picture over. It's the girl who stabbed you. And if it doesn't look like her, you have to be honest with me. And I was like, I will. I'll tell you if there's anything wrong. And again, I'm on Dilaudid. Keep that in mind. And they flip the picture over, and it looks just like the girl, right? But again, I'm on Dilaudid. And it's so strong. And I'm thinking, man, I have good ideas. And she says, does this look like the girl? And I should have said yes, because it did. But again, Dilaudid. And I look at her and I said, it wouldn't look like the girl if she had like 30 more pounds in the face. Because in my head, as a woman, 
I'm thinking that girl who did this is going to be watching the news, right? She's going to see the van. You know, it was my aunt's van. She's going to see me. That's the girl I robbed. Then she's going to see the sketch, and she's going to go, I'm not a fucking fat, and have self-esteem issues for the rest of her fucking life. Emotional prison. So when it was all said and done, um, the police told me something very interesting. They said, you know, Kat, what happened to you that night? That was a gang initiation. They were trying to initiate the young lady in the gang. And that's what hurts the most. Because like I said, I'm a team player and also I beat her ass. I should be in the fucking gang now. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. Turns out they're closed And a van of gangbangers rolled up One of them stabbed me I didn't want to have to kill someone today Let's wait and see I got your DNA now, bitch (laughs) Delauded Growing up, I was told that being Jewish was the greatest thing that I could ever be. And everyone I loved told me this. My mom, my dad, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, even my grandparents who had escaped the Nazis in Poland. They said always what an honor it was to be one of God's chosen people. And I really wanted to believe them because it was a lot of fun. I mean, every weekend there was a wedding or a bar mitzvah with a funny sermon by our hip, curly-haired young rabbi. And then afterwards, hundreds of adults would stand around pyramids of brownies while us kids ran around the temple exploring all the areas we were told never to go to. I loved these people, and I loved this place. So if there was a greatest thing to be, I could see how they would think that being Jewish was it. But the one thing that kept me from truly embracing Judaism was Sunday school. I hated Sunday school. It was the most miserable experience of my young life. So the first reason was that my parents forced me to go. 
Now, they had told me that they hated Sunday school, but their parents had forced them to go. So because they had to go, I had to go. And this logic made it seem like they were deliberately trying to make me miserable. And also, it was physically uncomfortable. So this was the 70s, and my mom would dress me up in these snug polyester checkered pants and itchy mustard-colored turtleneck sweaters. And I was a chubby kid, so they accentuated my boy boobs. And the lessons were terrible. So our teachers were not really teachers. They were sons and daughters of the religiously persecuted like my parents. They had no experience. So what they did was they taught to their parents' experiences, which meant they leaned heavily into the Nazis early and often. So for example, when I was five years old, our teacher sat us down with a very sweet-looking but very weathered old man who then described in gruesome detail his experiences in Auschwitz. And for the next two years, we were inundated with video footage of emaciated bodies at the concentration camps and games meant to teach us about how the Nazis could happen in America. And our teachers said that they did this because they didn't want us to forget and to show us what great people we were. But I didn't get that message. What I got was that the world hated Jews, and that did not seem like a great thing to be. So to get through these times, I developed a, a process. I would sit still, I wouldn't move, and I would focus on the end so I could go home and watch Abbott and Costello movies. Mm. They always had monsters. I love the monsters. So one day, when I was seven years old, I was sitting in Ms. Shapiro's class, practicing this, when a woman named Ms. Zakharoff walked into the room and planted herself in the front of the room. Now, Ms. Zakharoff was a legend because she played the piano for our temple choir, but she and her family had escaped the Soviet Union, and the Soviets were notorious for how much they hated Jews. Now, Ms. Zakharoff announced in this loud and thick accent that we had to leave our classroom immediately. She told us to line up, and we were going to go into the temple's small chapel. And so our teachers lined us up, and on the way to the small chapel, Ms. Shapiro looked at us and said, in a, with concern that I could tell it was fake, I wonder what's happening. I wonder why this is happening. Now, I knew that another The World Hates Jews lesson was coming. So I just put my head down and I thought, Abbott and Costello, Abbott and Costello. So when we got to the small chapel, there were about 60 kids in a room that was meant for 30. And our teachers invited us to ask us how it felt to have been kicked out of our classroom. And one kid said, great, before being reminded that this was very serious business. But before we could get to that series, Ms. Zakharoff returned and said the decision had been made and we had to leave the temple entirely. And nobody moved. And I was thinking about Abbott and Costello. So I got up, I picked up my stuff, and I was about to leave when Ms. Zakharoff pointed at me and yelled, no, you will leave those here. Now I was shocked and a little bit angry because I was playing her game. And I deserved to be yelled at, but I also wasn't a protester. So I put my stuff down, I got in line, and we left the temple. Now, it was a cold February day. And they took us to a thicket of bushes and trees past the parking lot, and they sat us on the cold, hard ground. And our teachers asked us how it felt that we might never see the people we loved again. And invited us to discuss our feelings about that. 
And some kid said something, but I didn't because I was sitting, I was freezing, and I was looking at the temple, and I was looking at the cars in the parking lot. And a couple minutes later, Ms. Zakharov returned in a long fur coat and one of those fuzzy Russian hats. And she said that a council had been convened and it was decided that we had to leave the country entirely. And the transportation had been arranged and we were to line up and we were to walk to it. So then we walked through the parking lot to the temple that moments ago we were told we might never see again. So we got to the temple's rec room and a bunch of chairs had been arranged in the outline of a ship. And in the middle of that ship was a tetherball pole with a white sheet on it that was supposed to serve as the ship's mast. And around the tetherball pole were a series of benches, and there wasn't enough room for all the kids. So most of us sat on the ground, which had been covered in dirt and orange peels and candy wrappers. And our teachers told us to say goodbye to everything we ever loved because we were never going to see this land again. And then we sailed off for the new world. And while we were sailing, they said to us that about half of us would die from malnutrition or dysentery. And so we'd have to throw each other's bodies over the side of the boat. And they also said that some of us would become so thirsty that we would have to drink our own pee. But some of the kids gasped, and the teachers loved this, inviting us to consider what it would be like to drink our own pee. But then we, we got to the new land and we rejoiced. But the celebration was short-lived because Miss Zakharov was there to meet us. And I remember thinking that she must have flown across and gone shopping because she was wearing a red blouse and a long jean skirt. And she announced that we were rejected from this new world and we would have to go back to where we came from. And then she left. And no one said a word. And Miss Shapiro turned to us and in her best effort to sound desperate, she said, well, we can't come here, and we can't go back to where we came from because they'll kill us. Well, what do we do now? What do we do? And no one said a word. But then one boy got up and walked to one of the chairs and stood up, and he turned to the class and with such confidence said, we kill ourselves. And then he jumped overboard and pretended to drown in the water. He flailed, he gasped. And then in slow motion, he swallowed what seemed like a gallon of seawater and then slowly came to rest on the imaginary waters with his eyes wide open, staring at us. I thought he was great. <laughs> I mean, he was too good, though. Like, I didn't know what, but I knew there was something wrong with this because he was having too much fun. And I thought he was really going to get it. And I was actually a little bit afraid for him. But instead, Miss Shapiro pointed to him as though someone had finally understood the point of this entire exercise and said, yes, yes, that's right, you kill yourselves. Each and every one of you would find the quickest way to die. At which point, 50 children ran to the chairs and jumped overboard and played at their own deaths and they sank and they got up and they drowned each other and all the while the teachers were saying nobody wants you you have nowhere to go nobody loves you nobody cares what are you going to do now what are you going to do now you're going to die and I stayed in the boat <laughs> because I had no idea what was happening 
And I kept thinking, like, I want to understand this. I, I really do, but I don't understand the instructions. And my confusion turned into anger, and I was so pissed at everyone for accepting this. And I just wanted this day to end, and I just wanted to go home. But when I got home, we had company at the house, and my mother yelled at me for getting my clothes dirty. And she ordered me to go change and to sit with my grandfather in the family room, which was extra punishment because my grandfather had emphysema and he was always coughing up bits of lungs into a handkerchief he kept in his pocket. But the final indignity was after I changed and got to the family room, my grandfather was watching the Three Stooges and he would not change the channel. And I was furious and my anger just boiled up and I wanted to scream at him for not letting me watch the one thing I wanted to watch. And I wanted to scream at my mom for making me sit with this man and for not listening to me when I was trying to tell her what happened. And I hated them. And then I hated the temple. And I hated my stupid teachers for making me sit through their depressing games. And then I hated the temple itself. And I hated Judaism. And I thought less of every single person I loved for thinking there was any sort of greatness in it. And it was so lonely and empty. So I sat with my grandfather and watched the Three Stooges. I mean, sure, it was hilarious, but I resented it. <laughs> so my grandfather was a bow-legged man, and when he was younger, he looked like James Cagney. And he once sat me down and said, when he was younger, when he was living in Poland, a bunch of people were attacking him and his friends and everyone he loved because they were Jewish. And so he had escaped, but most of the people he loved had died at the hands of the people who were attacking him. And he never gave me many details, but when he did, it was always with this sad and quiet voice. And as I was watching The Three Stooges with my grandfather, it occurred to me that here was actually someone who had gone through all this. And I wanted suddenly to ask him a million questions. Like I wanted to ask him how might he and my grandfather had escaped. Had they come by boat? Had they come by plane? And who were the people they left behind? Like did he remember them? And if he did come by boat, did he have to drink his own pee? And what it was like to throw his friends overboard? What was it like to live through that? And how could you like being Jewish after all that? But I was exhausted and in the beginning stages of what would turn out to be a fever. So I watched one stooge slap another stooge. And then I asked my grandfather, did you ever go to Sunday school? And he smiled, and he laughed, and he said no. And then he started coughing again. As I watched him cough and considered his answer, I looked at him, and I thought to myself, with more than a little bit of jealousy, you lucky, lucky bastard. <laughs> Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Kings of Leon behind me now. And we just heard from Robert Weinstein. Before that, a little interstitial uh, that our episode editor, Jeff Barr, sang uh, over... I, I think that this character that Jeff is singing on in so many of these songs has kind of a, a, a Tom Waits ishness about him and uh jeff was lucky enough to have the legendary ray charles doing the backup vocals for him on that one now don't forget folks that we teach storytelling as well at our school the storystudio.org is where you'll find us online Lots of different kinds of workshops, storytelling for personal growth, storytelling for performance, you know, for the stage, like on risk, and storytelling for business. There's also different formats. Uh, You can do an online workshop with various students, uh, giving you all kinds of feedback, or you can download our video course and take that in your own time. There's one-on-one training with our story coaches, same people, The faculty members over at the Story Studio are also the story producers and coaches here at Risk. And, of course, we do those special customized workshops for businesses or organizations. Find all of that at thestorystudio.org. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Our final story on this week's episode is from first-time Risk Storyteller Sam Carliner. Boy, this was so moving. It's funny, this story takes place on the weekend of, like, New Year's Eve. And and I really feel like February, I I feel like we're, we're, for me, it's really the start of the year because... Everything I promise I'm going to start doing in January. It takes me till about February to actually get around to any of it. Plus, it's the Lunar New Year right now. So, still 
New Year's in all kinds of ways. And here now is Sam Carliner live at Caveat in New York City with a story we call The Second Act. It's 8 a.m. on New Year's Day 2020, and I'm standing on the beach. It's gray, it's cloudy, it's about 35 degrees outside and I'm freezing. I'm in Maine. Why in the world am I standing on a beach in Maine? Well, about a year before, on Christmas morning, my wife awoke to find our then 23-year-old son lying unresponsive, and unconscious in a pool of his own vomit with an empty whiskey bottle by his side. She called 911, had him taken to the hospital. Then she called me and said, I think you better come home. You see, the day before I had left to go skiing with our other son, it was something we had always done as a family and enjoyed. But those days were long behind us now. My wife had feigned being sick so she could stay home and watch over our son. And as I drove to the hospital, I kept thinking about all the other times I had driven to the hospital. And I was wondering, is this going to be the time I plan my son's funeral? As I walked into the hospital though, it was different this time. There were no tears of sadness. No, I'm sorry, dad, it'll never happen again. He was angry and belligerent. He was so out of control, the hospital staff had to place a security guard on him. But the doctors were just dismissive of the drunk and wanted to send him home. We begged and pleaded with them to keep him so we could figure out something to do. Finally, we convinced them to hold him until his blood alcohol level came down to just below the legal limit. That was gonna buy us a good eight hours. We scrambled trying to find professional help, but we managed. The next day, we held an intervention in our house. My son refused to come downstairs. So we all went to his room and I remember walking into his room that stale stench and smell of urine and vomit that just perforated the air. He had his back towards us curled up in a fetal position, the covers almost over his head. And after years of yelling and screaming and angry tones, I calmly and lovingly read him a letter. Son, you're an addict. Please go into treatment. I love you. Without missing a beat, his response, nope. One by one, everyone else that had gathered in the room read their letters. His response each and every time, nope. Until finally, almost an hour had passed. I was besides myself. I made one last impassioned plea. Son, 
you have two choices. You can go into treatment or I have a social worker here who's ready to take you to a shelter where you can live in the streets. His response this time, silence. The silence was deafening. It was like a big fuck you, dad. It seemed like it went on for eternity. And then all of a sudden, he got out of bed and said, fine, I'll go into treatment and started shoving clothes into a knapsack. He went down to the door and stopped. And then he knelt down and he gave the dog this tender, loving hug. When he stood up, we were face to face, each just shells of ourselves, neither one knowing what to say to the other. I instinctively leaned in to give him a hug, but whatever emotion or feeling a hug is supposed to convey, this conveyed nothing. And he stood there with his arms by his side, lifeless, conveying even less. He went into a 30-day treatment program. And while I knew and had a lot of contact with the staff, I knew what was going on with him. I had almost no contact from him. In fact, the couple of times that we did have contact, they were these awful, belligerent phone calls. You put me here to hide your problem. Nothing could have been farther from the truth. At the end of 30 days, I knew he could not come home. He knew he could not come home. So he went into a long-term residential treatment program. Now, the difference between this 30-day program and the long-term residential program was like the difference between preschool and college. I went from having all this information to having almost no information at all. In fact, when I spoke to the staff, they would ask me, how are you doing? How am I doing? I'm miserable. I'm walking around with a freaking neon sign over my head that says I raised an addict. I hate people. I don't want to be around anybody. How did this become my life? Seems like the other day I remember going into the city to watch the Rangers, something we did all the time. And on this one particular evening, I remember we got in early and we looked around for a place to eat. We found this little hole in the wall barbecue joint. We went in, he had the brisket, I had the shredded beef. We sort of shared and compared notes. They had these great homemade hot sauces. We had a little contest to see who could handle the heat the best. He won, the Rangers won. It was a great night. We were going home, reminiscing about how much fun we had. And all I could think about was how I hoped that we would have so many of these shared experiences in the future. But that future never came. The next five years were miserable. I was broken. Addiction had robbed me of the relationship I had with my son. For seven months, there was no communication at all. I finally made a deal with myself that if I never 
heard from my son again, but he was sober and led a sober life, I would accept that. That was the bitterest and hardest pill I ever had to swallow. And then one day I got a text. How's the dog? <laughs> Two weeks later, another text. A couple weeks after that, a phone call. Now, these conversations that we were having were awkward. Neither one of us really knew who the other one was. And these conversations were punctuated by these periods of silence. And the silence made me feel so uneasy and so uncomfortable. And then one day, I got another phone call. Hi, Dad. I just wanted to let you know that I just came back from my one-year anniversary meeting, and I received my one-year sobriety chip. And I'm thinking, I know. I had asked you if we could come up, and you said no. You didn't want us to be part of that inner circle of yours. And he continued. I spoke, and people came up and said nice things to me and nice things about me. And then he concluded, do you think you and mom would like to come up tomorrow night and go out to dinner on New Year's Eve? <laughs> no sooner than I hung up the phone, we're packing up the car and heading up to Maine. The whole drive up, I was nervous, but excited. I really didn't know what to expect. As I walked into the restaurant, I saw my son and I went up to him and I instinctively gave him a hug. His response this time was robotic. He sort of put his arms around me like he was supposed to or instructed to, but there was no real feeling or emotion that was behind it. Dinner was pleasant enough. It was almost like going out to lunch or dinner with your boss for the first time. It was safe conversation and safe topics. But again, there were these gaps and periods of silence that would throw my anxiety through the roof and made me so uneasy. The interesting thing, though, was he was okay with the silence. As dinner drew to a close, he said, thanks for coming. This was nice. I said, thanks for having us. And then he said, you know, Dad, tomorrow morning, my group is having its annual polar plunge. Would you like to join us? <laughs> and without thinking, I said, of course. So here I am, standing on a beach on New Year's Day in Maine. Now, let me tell you a little something about this beach. It is not the beautiful sands of the Caribbean. It is this muddy, rocky beach that's framed on either side with these huge outcroppings of rock. Besides the fact that it's 35 degrees outside, the wind is whipping around, making it feel like 20, catching the waves, throwing it into the rocks, creating this mist that's hanging in the air, 
slowly soaking my clothes and chilling me to the core. And then off in the distance, I see my son. And he's with a group of about 30 young men. And they're coming down to the beach. And there is this energy and excitement about them. When they get to the beach, we all get in a group and everybody starts stripping down and they're all wearing their little Speedos. Nope. I have my bathing suit on. I brought it just in case I got to spend some time in the nice warm hotel hot tub. (laughs) See how well that worked out. And then their program director began to speak. But I was momentarily distracted because as I looked around, I realized that I was the only outsider there. Everyone else there, it was my son, the young men from his program, their staff. No one else had family or siblings or friends. There was no one from the greater community that was invited. And I realized that he had invited me into his inner circle. And I was touched. And then my attention got drawn back to their program director who was speaking about why they're doing this. You see, this wasn't just some New Year's Day stunt. Ha ha, let's just jump in the freezing cold water on New Year's Day. This was about the community they had built, the experience, strength, and hope that they share with one another and support each other. It was, it was moving. It was emotional. I, I'd love to tell you that I shed a tear but it would have frozen on my face. (laughs) Then like the ball the night before in Times Square, there was this countdown from 10 and I'm running shoulder to shoulder with my son headed towards the water. We sort of step over the first wave, we jump over the second wave, and as the third wave comes, I dive head into it. And immediately, I am enveloped by silence. But this time it was different. I wasn't anxious. I wasn't uncomfortable. I didn't have that uneasy feeling. No, this time, the silence was beautiful. The silence was peaceful. And as I was gliding through the water, I could feel the strength of the waves crashing above my head. The silence was empowering. And then like that, I came to the surface, I took a big breath of air, (gasps) And my lungs froze. I was so disoriented. I spun around looking for land. I saw the beach and I started running as fast as I could. And as I was running, I realized I couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't feel my arms or my legs. And as I hit the beach, I couldn't feel my feet. I made it to my clothes, but my hands were like these little frozen lobster claws. I couldn't put on my socks or my shoes. I could barely get a sweatshirt around my shoulders. My teeth were chattering. I thought I was gonna break them all. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw my son. And he put his arm around me and gave me a hug and said, I love you, dad. And that, That was all the warmth I needed. Thank you.
is all for this week's episode folks this is you two behind me now and we just heard from sam carliner boy that was a moving moment and remember risk will be back at caveat on february 17th 9 30 p.m if you can't make it in person you can also get tickets for the live stream that is all at risk-show.com slash tour And don't forget that February 17th show will also be the day after my birthday. So we'll be celebrating that too. Folks, don't forget we're still thinking of creating a sort of a social event for Risk fans in or around New York City sometime in the spring, most likely. So if you're one of those folks who might be interested in attending, email me at kevin at risk-show.com and I'll put you on a list of folks to contact when we do that. And did you know you can hire me personally for storytelling training? You can find me at kevinallison.com and look us up. Our social media for Risk is all at Risk Show on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And on Twitter and Instagram, I am at the Kevin Allison. Folks, Today's the day. Take a risk.
do this anymore. <laughs>